Welcome to the Bill Bradley Collective. We are here in the Levy Nadelberg compound in beautiful New London, Connecticut, the Athens of southeastern Connecticut. Uh, how you doing, Zach? Doing all right, hanging in. How you doing, Andrew? Doing well, sir. Loving this weather. Loving this. Yes, it is a very comfortable day out here. At some point, we will no longer be able to be the most popular sports politics podcast broadcast uh, from outside. We'll have to actually go inside, but those days are in the future. So before we get started, and today we're going to talk about uh, Tommy Smith and, and John Carlos. In season one, we did a tribute, of course, to Bill Bradley. In season two, we did a tribute to Maya Moore, uh, and congratulations on her recent marriage. Uh, and today we're going to do Tommy Smith and John Carlos from 1968. But before we start, um, we do have to note the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, last night uh, as we record this. Um, her reputation in New London is more complicated than it is anywhere else in the country because she made a decision on eminent domain that allowed the city to take over public uh, homeowners' property to sell to a private company, uh, which was Pfizer. It has been a disaster for this city. Um, that is a mark on her in this town, but uh, her career as a whole is something to be honored and remembered. Um, she is a true Zodic, which is a warrior who died, a righteous warrior who dies on Rosh Hashan. And we want to say to her, may her memory be a blessing. Uh, thank you, Jen Picari from AFT, who told us this is what we say for Jewish people, because otherwise we would have just stumbled and said, rest in peace, like the morons we are. So um, with that, we will be back in just a minute to talk about Tommy Smith and John Carlos. Coming to you from the intersection of sports and politics, we are the Bill Bradley Collective. Here are your hosts, Ed, Zach, and Andrew. So one of the most iconic photos in all of sports is a picture of Tommy Smith and John Carlos in the Black Power Salute in 1968 um, at the Olympics. I vaguely remember this because we went to my Uncle Walt's house, uh, my father's brother, who was horrified about what happened and was thought they should have their gold medal stripped. He was very angry. My Uncle Walt, in the 42 years since that event, or 52 years since that event, has taken the exact same path my father has and gone from a Goldwater Republican to slightly to the left of Che Guevara. But uh, at the time, and I just remember being very confused but I think that photograph has to be kept in context in this gesture, and that's why we're talking about it today in this, in this age of protest, th this action. So, Zach, talk a little bit about what was going on in 68, in the summer of 68. Yeah, I think, I think it's th that that part of this picture is forgotten, that in 1968, like, America was in a fairly turbulent time. Um, you had the rise of the Civil Rights Movement, which uh, was very divisive, especially among white Americans and African-American Americans. You had uh, the deaths, the assassination of uh, Martin Luther King Jr., as well as the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who in many ways was 
uh, viewed as a very strong ally of the African-American community and African-American rights. That was one of the planks of his platform. And it also was in the midst of the rise of kind of the Vietnam protests that it really started gaining steam. And the riots in Newark and, and throughout. And in the- Mexico City, the riots right. in Mexico City with the students organization where they, uh, the government went and bulldozed the protesters out of the way. Uh, you know, which, you know, hopefully Donald Trump doesn't listen because we already see what he does to protesters. It's, that only happened 10 days before. The best thing about that is there's nothing good about it. But in retrospect, they say the death toll was somewhere between four and 3,000, which is a pretty broad swatch to be guessing at. Mexico City uh, police reported it as four. So most people are closer to the 3,000 number. But regardless... That was a start, and um, they were also part of the uh, Smith and Carlos were also helped organize the Olympic Project of Human Rights. And, and do you want to talk about that for a second? Andrew? Sure. Um, founded by um, influential, noted sociologist Harry Edwards. Um, Harry Edwards actually, leading into '68, he he kind of urged, he suggested that the black athletes boycott the games. And so Smith and Carlos have a, a particularly close relationship association with Edwards in that they are both, at the time, they're student-athletes at um, San Jose State University, where Edwards is their, one of their professors. Um, there were conditions of this boycott, um, four of which, um, that unless these four things were met, the boycott would go through. And the four things were they wanted South Africa and Rhodesia uninvited from the Olympics because both countries were under um, white minority rule. Apartheid. Yeah, they wanted Muhammad Ali's uh, heavyweight title returned to him. They wanted, and we'll get into this guy. They wanted Avery Brundage to uh, step down as president of the IOC. Fair right. And the fourth of which was the hiring of more African American assistant coaches. Um, so they obviously there is not a boycott as uh, Smith and Carlos end up participating in the Olympics. They finish the 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 event is the two hundred meter. Um, sprint. It's it's one of the glamour, high-profile events of like the Summer Olympics. It was then. It is now. Showcased the best sprinters in the world. Um, Tommy Smith finishes first. John Carlos finishes third. They occupy two-thirds of the podium. And I mean, the rest is kind of history um, from there. Yeah, I I also think like in the boycott, you know, one of the things they they also wanted was kind of just they wanted to represent the Olympics and have the country represent them back. I mean, Tommy Smith talks about that uh, when he when he uh, does the protest on the thing is that he covered the American flag with a black shirt uh, because he was like, I don't want to represent a country that doesn't represent me. And that was also part of it is that they, they went to go play they, because they still, you know, we talked about this in the NBA protest, you know, we and we had that debate, I think, last week or two weeks ago about, you know, where do you have the bigger platform? And it, it is hard to argue that by them winning and doing this plaf- and doing this protest that it, it wasn't a significantly larger platform than if they just never showed up. Yeah, clearly in 2020, we're not talking about people who did not participate in the 1968 Olympics. Like, that's that would not be an issue for us, especially after, in what, 80 and 84, whole swatches of the country, of the world didn't show up for the Olympics. So as you said, Carlos uh, finished his third there has been some tension between Smith and Carlos who are never thought of separately, ever. Um, 
there was some tension because Carlos claimed he slowed down because he didn't think Smith would participate if he didn't win. Uh, Smith thought that was ridiculous. And Smith was traditionally the better sprinter. Um, but I think it's also important, like Smith, because uh, there is a difference in, in kind of what happens next, is Smith is much more of the quiet, kind of reserved uh, person, individual, whereas yep. Carlos is much more assertive in his views and much more, you know, out front and kind of uh, really, you know, not hiding what he thought, you know, and you see that in the difference, the interview with Cosell after where Smith is talking to him and he's very calm and kind of soft-spoken. And then there's interviews and they're trying to talk to Carlos and Carlos is like, you can get that camera out of my face. Like, I'm not talking to you. I mean, this is also one of the results of, you know, what the IOC did to them immediately after. And and one of the kind of, you're talking about that, one of the things when you look at that picture a lot, of course, I've grown up with that picture, um, is Tommy Smith has his right hand raised and Carlos has his left hand raised. And I thought, like, that's odd. Like, it's you've got to have, like, one of them is a black power salute. But Carlos had forgotten his gloves. And so they wanted to have the black glove. And it was the third guy on the podium. And I'm going to talk about him for a second. Peter Norman, who won the silver medal, who said, well, it would be powerful if you shared them. And um, I just want to stop for a second on Peter Norman who suffered at a country's level, at, at the national level, far more than Smith and um, uh, and Carlos did. Carlos was part of the 84 Olympic project. He was on the organizing committee, whereas Smith was ne- not even allowed to show up in 2000 when they celebrated Australian athletes because he, they had never forgiven him for not, for not protesting it and for wearing the badge. Um, he did not was not allowed to participate in the seventy two Olympics because um, even though he had won the trials, they wouldn't let him participate. They just, they so just didn't send a sprinter. They didn't send a sprinter. Um, and you know, he he when he died in two thousand six, both Smith and Carlos went to Australia to be pallbearers. One of the things you notice, I'm sure, when you start doing research for this, is somewhere around nineteen eighty maybe. People said, you know, we need to learn about, we need to think about the third guy because the idea was, well, he got overshadowed because, of course, everyone remembers who won the silver medal in the 68 Olympics and every other event. And, but what ended up happening, like the first time, it's like, oh, yeah, what about that guy? You know, that's a cool story. But then when everybody does it, it's, oh, the star of this is the white guy who stood there. And not the black guy, the black people who did the work. It's it's like all those movies, uh, like The Help, where the real you know it's about the sacrifices of the white people who just watch the black. You know, it, it was so hard to watch you be yeah. beaten, honey. And Emma Stone <laughs> is the fucking star, right? You know yeah. What I mean? yeah. Well, I I want to touch on something. You know, moving moving away from Norman for a bit, just for the protest by itself, uh, where Norman does you know wear a button and and show solidarity, and I think that that is. A powerful statement, especially at the time, because he was facing a lot of white nationalist rise in Australia. I mean, they Australia is not the most progressive country in the world in many, many ways. Nope. <laughs> and but I think it's important also to talk about, you know, yes, they had the gloves and they split the gloves. And Tommy Smith gave this kind of great explanation of it, where the right fist stood for black power. The left fist stood for black unity. They wore socks instead of shoes to represent black poverty. And they wore the scarves and, and the, the beads. beads to represent just, like, blackness. Anti-lynching. 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 Yeah, anti-lynching. And you realize the issues that they were fighting about 
them and protesting then are the exact issues we're still seeing fought for now. Somehow, we still have not been able to pass anti-lynching legislation in this country because Kentucky's other terrible senator, Rand Paul, refuses to sign it and, and, and holds it up. And so, yeah, some of the, it's amazing how little has changed in, in 52 years. So after the protest, you know, I mentioned this before, the IOC's response. Um, and I think this is where, you know, we, we can talk a little bit about Brundage uh, here. There's because just so many great quotes. And like the, like the, the IOC um, immediately, immediately puts out a, sp- a statement saying that this was a deliberate and violent breach of fundamental principles of the Olympic spirit. And Brundage uh, evicts them. Well, says you have to leave, and when they said no, they said, okay, well, then everyone has to leave. So, of course, Carlos and Smith get evicted. They were kicked out of the Olympic Village. And, A, we bring up seemingly every week that we are taught that accepting and supporting the status quo is an apolitical act, but challenging the status quo is a political act which was is bullshit on its face. And secondly, Avery Brundage fought to make sure that we did not boycott the 36 Olympics where Nazi salutes were kind of all over. And that was a thing. four years later, in 1972, refused to shut down the Olympics after the murder of seven um, Israeli athletes. Now... In both 36 and 72, the um, thing that joined those two is that Brundridge's anti-Semitism, which he was famous for at the time, uh, came out. But the reaction was by, by the Olympic Committee was far stronger than it was from the American Olympic Committee. And in fact, it took a few days for there to be any backlash. And... Some of the athletes were very supportive. The uh, women's, the women's uh, marathon, uh, women's 400-meter or 200-meter relay, they dedicated their gold medal to Smith, to Smith and Carlos. Um, that uh, Ralph, uh, Ralph Boston, who was the long jumper who was not Bob Beeman, said the rest of the world did not find it such a deg- uh, derogatory thing. They thought it was a very positive act only in the U.S., was it viewed as a negative? George Foreman, um, who kind of ironically later on is sort of portrayed by Ali when they're prof- when they're both professionals as sort of like a. Um, he called him an Uncle Tom. He, yeah, <laughs> I mean, Th- thank you. I'm not sure we're not we're allowed thank to say you. that, but Ali said those right. words every day. George Foreman was there in '68, and he told. Uh, and there's a great documentary that NBC did on the 68 Olympics. And Carlos says that like one of the one of the biggest one of the, one of the most prominent guys that had our backs then was George Foreman. George Foreman reached out to me with money, with support. He said, "I got your back." Um, how about the media at the time? How about a certain, not yet famous, soon to be the face of pretty much every major American sporting event on CBS and later ABC, Brent Musburger. At this time in 1968, is uh, writing for the Chicago American, and what does he call this? He describes Smith and Carlos as quote a couple of black-skinned stormtroopers who are quote ignoble, juvenile, and unimaginative. 
What the fuck is well, that? I, I, do, do you realize that Jimmy the Greek <laughs> got fired from from CBS Sports for being the second most racist person on the panel? Think about that. Think, well, yeah. I think it's it's also important to mention because like we hear stormtroopers, and obviously in 2020 we think of oh stormtroopers, Star Wars. This was five years before the first Star. <laughs> He's calling it's them a- Nazis. Yeah. He's basically like stormtroopers were were called Nazis it's, at that it's point. It's ten years before the first Star yeah, Wars. But yeah, yeah. But yes, he yes, he's calling them Nazis. Yeah. It, and everyone's like, oh, okay. And then he doesn't back down from it. He literally becomes at this point he's a journalist and he becomes literally, I think, the most visible sportscaster in the country. He's still around, isn't he? He is um <laughs> he's involved in this like sports gambling um in TV endeavor, uh Vison, V I S I N or something, and it's what a fall from grace. What a rise and fall. It's, it's But he's got to be like 88. Old as fuck. <laughs> yeah. Like, so, so, I mean, it, it ain't, it's not a bad retirement job, but like, no. what does he need the money for? No. Jesus. No. He's he, got to have like 11 ex-wives. I don't know. That's my And I, I think a, a, a bad gambling habit and a, he's yeah. The, he's the Nicolas Cage of sports reporters. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it's also like compare, compare Musburger's response in the immediate backlash to Howard Cosell's, who at the time, I mean, Cosell was probably the biggest... The biggest voice in sports. I mean, he had what the Wild World of Sports. He had at, si- at sixty-eight. His his apex comes the next five years because sixty-eight, I think, is when Monday Night Football starts. Seventy, seventy, yeah. right? It's Monday Night Football that makes him a huge star, and Muhammad Ali makes him a huge star. But but you you see Cosell, and Cosell's the first one to interview uh, Tommy Smith after. And one, if you want to see a, a change in journalism, go watch that Howard Cosell interview. But Howard Cosell just says, "Would you like to talk?" and gives Tommy Smith just three minutes to talk. No one, no, no panel to show the other side. No one popping up. It was just, "Hey, here it is." But his most important one was kind of this editorial uh, he gave at the end of the coverage, where he just rips into the Olympic Committee, rips into kind of America for their reaction, saying like, "These men are trying hard. These men are making a stand, and an important stand." And we're vilifying them and basically saying, like, the U.S. Olympic Committee is trying to send America, like, back in the time. Unfortunately, Cosell, as somebody who was there for most of his career, um, Cosell, like so many people, became a parody of himself by the end. Plus, he was drunk a lot. But um, the at the time, I mean, I remember when all the interviews with Ali, where it was also, like, Ali did 85% of the talking and Cosell would then, you know, come out and agree with him at a time when that could cost you your career, and it made his. Uh, I, I, I think one of the reasons for Cosell's kind of coherent and 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 very detailed response compared to Musburger's, you know, Nazi comment was, he, I think he knew and talked to Tommy Smith and Juan, and and John Carlos, and he got to like appreciate them as people because these were very impressive. Like they were kids; they were really impressive kids showing up and doing this and be, taking a stand against like poverty and injustice and you know Cosell I think took the time to see that whereas Musburger you know gotta fill 500 words I'd be remiss not to mention if you want to go back way back to uh, our profile of Bill Bradley I talk about the the scene in the Knicks locker room in 19, after the 1970 finals where Cosell one by one talks to Bill Bradley talks to Willis Reed talks to Clyde Frazier the Busher and he's thoughtful he lets them talk now it's you see the interviewer, the the journalist, is like he gets he he lets the athletes speak their mind. And he gives he really gives them a true forum to like express themselves. And they had so much time. Like he would do five. He'd let somebody talk for four minutes. It wasn't getting on to the next thing. One of the things about his wide world of sports is they were often just conversations. It's like a talk show. One thing people forget about 
Howard Cosell, is the reason that Saturday Night Live's actors were called the not ready for primetime players is because Howard Cosell had a variety show. And the people who were on it were called the primetime players that did the little skits. And the big thing, his big break, was he introduced the Bay City Rollers to America. That show, which I don't know if it's still on YouTube, they may have burned all of the copies, Was it made the Chevy Chase show look brilliant. It was incredible. I, it, I was like 12 and was mesmerized by it. You should have had me and Zach do S A T U R D A Y night. You should have had us do that, man. That would have been fun. Oh no, no, you had to, you had to do midnight at the oh, fair, fair. Yeah, I mean, it, it, this this media reaction is kind of like disparate because some people only focus on the fact that we just had a world record. Record. We had an athlete set a world record in sprinting, the first guy to ever break twenty seconds of the two hundred meter sprint. Yep. Which, like now, you know, seems quaint, you know, in terms of time. But I mean. Uh, uh, was it Tommy Smith or John Carlos had a record that wasn't broken until like Tyson Gay broke it in 2010? Like these guys were world class athletes. These were not, you know, run of the mill people. And of course, the other thing about the '68 Olympics is every record was set there. It was because, altitude, because, altitude, right? Right, because yeah. it, it was over it was seven thousand feet in the air. And that's Bob Beeman jumped twenty nine feet. Carl Lewis didn't break that for thirty years. Yeah. But, but I think it, it, it's, it's important to touch on this because it's we see it so much now with the media reaction to the NBA protests, uh, the WNBA protests, the NFL kneeling, where like Time Magazine said that it changed the Olympic motto to angrier, nastier, and uglier. You know, th- this is right in line with the IOC saying that this was a violent breach of fundamentals. These men were standing silently and raising their fists. It's the same way as like the Milwaukee Bucks just didn't play. Colin Kaepernick's just taken a knee like... What is violence? Well, where is the violence? It, it it shows the absolute bullshit about we want peaceful. We don't have a problem with peaceful protest because they define peaceful as anything that doesn't make me feel something I don't want to feel. And if you're feeling something you don't want to feel, it's not a protest. Like, and and it. I mean, I remember I was six. I remember not understanding why anyone was upset about this. They stood there, they honored the flag in their way. And I just thought it was kind of cool. I and mean, I was a little kid, but I thought it was kind of cool. And my father had a problem with it. But then my uncle Walt was like so over the top that he was. I remember him talking the way back, like you know, they didn't, like they didn't do anything terrible. Like they just, they they looked at it their own way. And the other thing about these guys is they're both still alive. Yes, they're both still kind of active. Um, they were they were. Uh, John Carlos had an interview and Tommy said I believe talking about. Both the ban on Olympic uh, protests and the NBA's protest, like within the last two months, yeah, they talked uh, about it. I mean, they're famous for this act, but they weren't defined by the act because they continue to define themselves. So here's my trivia question. I told you I have a trivia question for you. Tommy Smith played three years in the NFL, but he only played one game because he was on the taxi squad. Mm-hmm. He had one catch for 41 yards mm-hmm. in his career. So I thought to myself, is that the highest average yards per reception in NFL history if you have no minimum? And it's not. The person who has that record played for the Jets in your lifetime. I could give you a thousand guesses, but I'll give you one. Tim Tebow. Close. Who? Fuck. Who was the? I don't know the name, but the it, it was a, t- a tight end they took. 
Johnny something. Um, it was a big bust. No, I, I, I don't have it. Johnny Lamb Jones was a, was the uh, Johnny Lamb Jones was a tight end. He was a receiver was from receiver. Texas. No, Mark Malone, quarterback of the Jets and also the Pittsburgh Steelers, yeah. and had uh, it might be the worst quarterback to ever play in an NFC championship, AFC championship game. Caught one pass for 90 yards in his career. Um, Terry Bradshaw threw it to him. I cannot imagine how wide open he was to be able to go 90 yards without it. He never threw a touchdown pass longer than 65 yards uh, in his career. But that's the record. Because I really thought, like, maybe Tommy Smith has that record. Because if, you can't do you it with two. Ball. You can't do it with two catches. You can only do it with one catch. Although, actually, Malone could have caught one screen for zero. Right. And he'd still have, he'd still have fifteen fantasy points in our league. Well, I think because <laughs> somehow we're not PPR. I think it's not this not this year. I think it's, I think it's also good to talk about like kind of their their post career lives because you know uh, Tommy Smith does end up on NFL plays for the Bengals I think in the yep. uh, taxi squad. Yep. John Carlos kind of has this very different post career experience where he can't really get a job he played in canada for a while yeah like he's kind of bumps around he works these odd jobs i think he's now a a, he's been a guidance counselor or something working at a school for yeah he he ended up settling down in the kind of settling in the 80s but but one of the one of the things i think you know compared to like now with kaepernick and you see the go on twitter and read any of his replies and you know it's basically the equivalent of the letters that these guys used to get you know there is kind of a tragedy in this story in that john carlos his wife committed suicide in 1977 and he attributes it to like he said you know one day it's sunny one day you're you're an olympic medalist and then the next day you're receiving hundreds of death threats a day and he can't get it you know tommy smith said he he couldn't get a job because he was notorious he had a seven-month-old child he was married and yet they both seem to figure it out and neither one comes across as bitter at all no they seem they come across as hopeful yeah that you know, I mean, Carlos said, um, what I did was write 48 years ago, and 48 years later, this he said this in 2016, and 48 years later, it was it has been proven to be right. In 1968, we were on a program for humanity, and we are still on that same program today. Like, it, it's such a powerful... Yeah, he, he says that it was not a black power salute, that it was a human rights salute. You know, in a lot of his interviews, he goes, it was, you know, it's, it's human rights salute. He's like, I was fighting for human rights. I was not fighting... Or just one specific. I mean, obviously, the human rights at the time in America that were most being oppressed by the state were, of course, African-American rights. But these guys have gone on to continue to kind of fight in this struggle throughout their entire lives, not just for African-American athletes, but kind of for a broader scope. And this, that moment, which we now see, I mean, it, it, it resonates today because we're still seeing it today. And um, Dave Hartman, who wrote a book about this, is... Um, not the David Hartman from Good Morning America. It's a different Dave Hartman. He said it was a polarizing moment because it was seen as an example of black power radicalism. Mainstream America hated what they mm. did. And we're still seeing that in every MAGA rally today, in every boat parade today, um, that the idea that black people have the nerve to feel equal is you know, not able to be accepted by a wide swatch of our country. The, the common thread, 1968 to today, and why there is, I, I suppose now, some reason for hope is that you know, in 68, 
there's it's it's fear fear of black power fear of black empowerment instead of any semblance of empathy why are they doing this why do they feel you know what as a white person ask yourself why do they feel the need to try to you know to, to make these gestures and it's instead of rejecting that fear and that cowardice and, and trying to show empathy and curiosity they just resort to like what you said with time magazine and what brent musburger and now today we're what, four years removed from Kaepernick being really, even by the NFL, public enemy number one. And now the NFL, ESPN, if you watched the, that Steelers-Giants game, they show that intro video, and, and Kaepernick is a prominent part of it. Still not in the NFL. Still not in the NFL. And he's still one of the best 64 quarterbacks. <laughs> by 32. Um, but there is, I think, finally, and they and these are the guys that started it, Smith and Carlos. A lot. Some of it, it's clearly still a big problem but i think at least some of that fear cowardice is slowly starting to um lean lean towards that more empathetic no i, I agree and like it, it's one of starting those, it's one of those things of like why were they wearing black socks to, to promote you know to, to bring attention to black poverty because there was black poverty they had redlining they were being excluded <laughs> from housing they were being excluded from work and that is something we are still seeing like now you know covid has ravaged African-American and Latino wealth significantly more than it has ravaged white wealth. The, the housing uh, crisis ravaged black home ownership significantly more than it ravaged white home ownership. And all of those are the policies from 1968 that they were protesting against. And when Tommy Smith was talking about, and John Carl was talking about, you know, covering the flag because they didn't want to represent a country, it reminded me a lot of the Doc Rivers quote that we talked about um, where he said, you know, we want we love our constitution that's all we want we want to love a country who loves us back and you know people take this as being like an affront to america you know they one of the white weightlifters in the olympics said well they they're free to go seek uh living elsewhere it's like no that that's not the answer the answer <sighs> is the, black people having equity doesn't take anything from you it doesn't take anything from anyone it just it's equity well it's it's the belief that the economic and political pie is, is finite and everything you gain i lose but of course, the people who feel who express that most strongly have nothing anyway. You know, I mean, it's Jeff Bezos and uh, Peter Thiel who have this, and this has nothing to do with that. I I thought the most touching comment I read, and, and Carlos, who is an incredibly eloquent man, yeah. like he just, you know, you don't read a lot of Tommy Smith's quotes, but Carlos's quotes just still ring home. And he said, "We knew we had to be seen because we knew we would never be heard," and it's like. Oh, okay. That makes a lot of it, sense. It, it reminds me of the, uh, the the Baltimore protest after Freddie Gray. There was a yeah. city councilor, and people asked him about the riots and the protests. And, you know, it, it's, it, it's the same exact thing we're seeing now. It's the same exact response, the same exact questions being asked, the same exact issues being fought over. And he said, riots and protests and vandalism are the voices of the voiceless because they don't know how to be heard any other way because no one wants to listen to them. And that is probably the most true statement in American politics of th these people are not being heard. I uh, Harry Edwards says, speaking of, of then, and it really, in a lot of ways, kind of exists now too, where the black athlete shows up at you know the Olympics, at college, in the pro ranks, they come, they perform, and then they just go back to where they came from. Well, what about when the athlete wants to be, wants to come back and coach? What if they want to be the AD at that school? What if they want to take have a actual career in life outside of just performing 
and working under, you know, this. Um, well, I mean, what if they want to be announcers, but they see Jason Witten get hired with absolutely no experience, no experience. Or, or Drew Brees get hired before he's even retired? Um, Tony you know, Romo. Uh, Tony Romo, I mean. Uh, and I think, you know, we talk about what was going on in the context of of the protest. And I think it's important to think about what they're asking for compared to what the protests that we see today are asking for. And MLK's assassination was very similar to that. And it reminded me a lot of the Memphis sanitation strikes and the signs that they carried were, I am a man. All they wanted was dignity. They just wanted dignity. Just treat me like a man. Treat me with some level of respect. And that's all they were asking for, too. And that's all these players are asking for. That's all Doc Rivers is asking for. That's all LeBron's asking for. That's all Kaepernick's asking for. They're just being asked to be treated with, like, a modicum of equality. And to wrap this up, I think that what those two men did is they created an act that still resonates with us 52 years later where our lack of growth, and our lack of understand, our lack of willingness to listen still is, is put in our face. It is one of the great photographs ever taken. Um, and I never see it, even though I was just a little kid when it happened. I was six. But I never see it without kind of getting goosebumps because it is these two articulate men standing up for what they believed in in a way that was powerful and simple and for a for half a century has resonated with us. So that's what we have today. Uh, we will be back next week because it will be the first presidential debate. And um, my guess is uh, there will be things to talk about. Yeah, ha- having to stay sober to that is not something I look There is to. no way in hell I'm staying sober for <laughs> yeah, it. But, I I will, like uh, but, I could, but I'll watch it also on YouTube the next day. Uh, I, I, oof, I can't imagine how bad it's going to be. But... But you know what? We'll be there to celebrate it. And then the next week, we get to do the Pence Kamala debate, which will be very exciting. Yeah, yeah. Mass- it's going to be a massacre. It's going to be a massacre. Very exciting. Yeah. Uh, God, all I can think of is God, I hope it's not Chaminade versus uh, Virginia. Chaminade <laughs> against Virginia, where somehow Pence comes yeah. out and he's funny and charming and raps or something so anyway stop it i you, you, you sow that seed of doubt now he'll, he'll play despacito into the into a microphone i just i just hope that his wife has to sit next to him so he doesn't he's not overcome with desire all right and with that and by the way if you want to get rid of desire karen pence is your person is your go-to all right and on that positive note we will see you next week on the bill bradley collective Thank you for joining us on the Bill Bradley Collective. Please engage us on Facebook at Bill Bradley Collective. And do subscribe on Apple, Spotify, whatever your preferred podcast platform. Thanks again. Thanks again.